Father God, we come before you in the glorious name of Jesus Christ. There is no other name by which we can approach you, Lord. And as I think of the events that have happened this past week and the events that we are going to be looking at and celebrating this week, I am firmly reminded and resolved that you, Lord Jesus, are the only hope. And so we come before you this morning in the name, that name, asking that you would take hold of our hearts and that you would focus our hearts on you, God. We know that when our hearts are rightly focused on you, we would have a right focus and perspective on all things. So remove the noise, remove the distractions, remove all those things that seek to pull our focus away. Open our eyes that we would see how wonderful and glorious you are, God, in your word. Take hold of our hearts and connect us all, unite us all to fear and treasure who you are. Satisfy us, Lord, with the love that you provide through Christ for all of us. Lead us into truth, especially in a world continuing to grow in lies. I pray that the words of my mouth would be pleasing in your sight. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would do that work that only you can do. That is, take, to, take hearts that are dead and give them life. Take hearts that are weak and give them strength. Take hearts that are strong right now and encourage them all the more. We pray these things in Jesus' glorious name. Amen. Well, this morning we're continuing in our gospel according to Luke. And we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 3, verses 23 through 38. And as you look at that passage, you may be thinking what I was thinking this week. How are we going to preach a sermon on a genealogy? Not your typical passages that you would hear preached. That's what we're going to do. We're going to look at this genealogy that Luke records, the genealogy of Jesus. And we're going to see what God has to say. Now, ancestry has become kind of a really big deal over the years. Everybody wants to know where they come from, and they want to know who they come from. I remember when I was at Trinity, I had a friend, and he found out that he was connected to Abraham Lincoln. Really neat. Um, I've never done these ancestry things, but I'm curious to know, where does my family line come from? And as we think about those ancestries and those family lines, there's a question that came that I was pondering over the week. What is the largest recorded genealogy or ancestry in the world? How far back can we really go? Well, in 2005, the Guinness Book of World Records recognized that Confucius genealogical line is the longest family tree in history, they said. It said that it had 86 recorded generations spanning 2,500 years. The Chinese philosopher Confucius is thought to have three million descendants all over the world. It's pretty impressive. But you can probably see from that record, the Guinness Book of World Records is not approaching that from the posture of faith. Because there's a longer, older, truer family tree than that of Confucius. It is the family tree which spans every human generation since the creation. It can be traced back chronologically through the Bible to around 6,000 years ago. 
And every human that's ever been born on this planet, including you and I, shared that ancestry. And it's the ancestry that goes back to Adam in the garden. Because Adam is the father of all humanity. And today, as we look at this genealogy of Jesus, we'll see that the genealogy of Jesus himself spans all the way back to Adam. And so this morning, our focus is this. This genealogy is going to show us that Jesus is the son of God, promised. Jesus is the son of God, the promised son of the covenant, who descended from Adam, Abraham, David, and is the promised savior of the world. Let me repeat, that was a mouthful. Jesus is the son of God, the promised son of the covenant, who has descended from Adam, Abraham, and David, and is the promised savior of the world. Now, I want to give you a warning. This is a more heady theological message as we're working through this genealogy. So if you don't have your Bible open and following along, you're probably going to feel a little bit lost. So I would encourage you to have it open and, and be tracking with us. Um, I'm not going to read the entire genealogy as much as as we work through it, we're going to look at various sections of the genealogy. But our first point this morning is a historical genealogy. So let me set the stage here. I want to give some initial comments on this genealogy. Matthew also records a genealogy. And Matthew's genealogy and Luke's genealogy differ a bit. Matthew starts his genealogy right at the beginning, Matthew chapter 1, whereas Luke puts it at the end of chapter 3. Matthew puts it at the beginning, as we'll see, for a very specific purpose, and so does Luke. Luke, putting it here at the end of three, does so because it is very fitting for the genealogy of Jesus, tracing back to Adam, to be what launches us off into Luke chapter four. Because in Luke chapter four, what we see is Jesus being led into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted. And being that, as we'll see in a few moments, Jesus is considered the second Adam. Jesus is being shown here to be representative of all humanity, succeeding where Adam failed. Another part where they differ in the genealogy is right there in verse 23. When he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Eli. Matthew doesn't say the son of Eli. Matthew says the son of Jacob. So some people say, well, see, the Bible contradicts itself. But that's not what's taking place here. The difference is Matthew was tracing Jesus' genealogy through the line of David. And what most theologians believe here is that Luke is tracing the genealogy through the line of Mary. So we're seeing two kind of different trajectories. And it would make sense that it's through the line of Mary. You see there, he was 30 years of age, as was supposed the son of Joseph. Because Jesus is not the biological son of Joseph. You saw that through the virgin birth. And so Jesus is Joseph's son by adoption. And by adoption, he has rights to the family line. But the difference here is that this is tracing through the line of Mary, which also is fitting as what we've seen in chapters one and two, and the focus of, the, of God coming upon Mary. 
Also, it says that Jesus was about 30 years of age, and this is important as well, because in Jewish tradition, it was around 30 years of age where a man could become a prophet. We see that in Ezekiel chapter 1-1. Ezekiel 1-1, now it happened in the 30th year on the fifth day of the fourth month. Ezekiel was 30. It was also the age where one could become a priest. We see that in Numbers chapter 4. Numbers chapter 4, verse 3. From 30 years and upward, even to 50 years old, all who entered the duty of doing the work in the tents of meeting. Also in verse 35, from 30 years upward, even to 50 years old, everyone who entered the duty of service in the tent of meeting. And we also see that that was a common age for men to step into kingship. David was 30 years old when David became a king. You see that in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 4. And what's interesting with those three connection points is that Jesus is held to be our prophet, priest, and king. So he's about 30 years of old. It's also the age of when people would come to be the rabbinic age it was often held. So I just wanted to initially kind of frame that. And one of the things that I found so interesting thinking just through those initial points is this. You look at that genealogy and you're, you're reminded that our faith is a historical faith. Genealogies are often, if you're doing a Bible reading plan, most of the time I know people just, okay, genealogy, just pass over it. But linger there for a moment. And remember, these are real people. It was a historical faith. It is a historical faith. And what's so amazing is that there's about 77 different names listed here. And very little is known about these men. You know, we do know. We know they had families. They had friends. They had jobs. They had dreams. They had fears. They had all types of Concerns that you and I would have, but none of it's recorded. We just have their names. In reading that, we're reminded that all men die. But even though these men die, very little notice about them, they're important because they point us to the Messiah. They point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Each of these these men and their families were a link in the chain coming to the incarnation of Jesus, to the ministry of Jesus, to the crucifixion, and to his resurrection. 77 answers, all serving to point to one man, our Lord and Savior. So here's what I would say to you and I about that. When we die and some time passes, very little will be known about us. As time goes, people remember less and less. But I pray that what does abide through the, through history is that we existed to point to Jesus. That we were a link in the chain, helping to further the advance of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ unto his return. 77 men, ancestors here, pointing to one Lord. 
that's a beautiful legacy. If your name was only recorded for one purpose, then to point back to Christ, and that is a glorious purpose to have your name exist. So I want us just to see that first point, which is our, our, our short point, but that it is a historical faith that we have. It's not fiction. Luke is a historian. If you go back and check these names and they don't check out, then you can question the inerrancy of the Bible. But this is a historical faith and these names do check out. But that being said, we're going to jump in now to the meat of our message. And it's going to be a high level understanding. But throughout the, this genealogy, there are a couple of names listed. And these names are important because they're names that God made covenants with. And so we're going to take an overview of the covenantal structure of God's word. So point number two, which will be our, our last point today, but our long point, a covenantal genealogy. Now, when we read our Bibles, it's important to have a framework by which to understand, kind of a map, a guide to, to understand what the Bible is saying and pointing us to. And one of the overarching frameworks of understanding the scriptures is covenants, because a covenant is how God has interacted with his people in time. So let me offer this definition of covenant. I've offered it before, but let's make sure we're all operating from the same basis. A covenant is a legally binding agreement between two parties with blessings and curses. A legally binding agreement with two parties, between two parties with blessings and curses. And I also want to just make clear, just because the word covenant at sometimes may be missing, it's not explicitly said in the text, doesn't mean that the covenant doesn't exist. The word Trinity, for example, doesn't exist in the Bible, doesn't mean the Trinity doesn't exist. If you were over here in a conversation and you heard two party, two people talking, say, hey, did you rent the banquet hall? Yes. Are you sure the minister is going to be there at 11? Yes. Awesome. Did she pick up her dress? Yeah. Do the men have their tuxes? Yes. Don't forget the rings. I never said the word wedding, but the context lets us know what is being discussed there is a wedding. In the same way, when we look at the biblical text, there are instances where what is being laid out there shows to be a covenantal structure, though the word covenant is not explicitly stated. That's important for a couple of these covenants that we're going to be looking at. As long as there are two parties, as long as there's promises and conditions, we can say that there is a covenant there. So the first covenant we're going to look at goes back down all the way to verse 38. Verse 38, the last line, talking of our Lord Jesus Christ, says that he was the son of God. Son of God. It's telling us that Jesus, though fully man, is also God. It is de he is a deity. It's crystal clear that Jesus is one with the Father. We've seen that in Luke chapter 1, verses 31 through 35, back when we were there, when it read, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great, and he'll be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him a throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and there'll be no end to his kingdom. But Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you 
And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for this reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. So it is a claim to Jesus' deity. Right above that, it says the Son of Adam as well. And what's very interesting to note is neither Jesus nor Adam had biological fathers. They both shared that God was their father. So, Son of God, and when people think of covenants, if I were to ask you, what's the what covenant came first? Most people say Abraham. Some really astute people say, you know, no, no, it was, it was Noah. And some might even go further and say, well, actually, there's a covenant with Adam. But the first covenant is actually what's known as the covenant of redemption. And this was a covenant that was made within the Trinity, within the Godhead, before anything was ever made. Before anything was ever made, God within the Trinity established a covenant for the redemption, the salvation of all who would trust in Christ. A covenant for the elect. And what is very crucial for us to understand about that covenant is that covenant is God's kindness because God owes us nothing. So the fact that in eternity past, before anything's made, God has already established a covenant by which he will save sinners who trust in Christ tells us that this is a God of immense kindness, love, grace, and mercy. So where do we see this covenant? We would go to Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 1, which is one of the most theologically rich chapters in all the Bible, we read the following, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. Before eternity, before eternity, in eternity past, before the creation, already the Father had chosen and the Son is going to secure. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 11. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. So in eternity past, God has chosen those unto whom he will give saving grace, and it will come by Christ fulfilling the will of the Father, which is his perfect life, his substitutionary death, and his resurrection. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which he has given us to Christ Jesus from all eternity. So from eternity past, church, I want us to see that if we are followers of Christ, that plan existed before you were created. From eternity past, God the Father had chosen a people that he would set his saving love on. That saving love would be secured through the work of Christ, and it would be applied by the Holy Spirit. Jesus talks about doing the will of God the Father in such a manner. John chapter 5, verse 30. I can do nothing from myself. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, 
but the will of him who sent me. Meaning Jesus came and he had a specific mission to carry out. John chapter 6, verses 38 and 39. I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now this is the will of him who sent me, that all he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. The last passage on this aspect of it is John 17. Jesus' high priestly prayer in the garden. John 17, verses 4 through 6. I glorified you on earth, having finished the work which you've given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which, which I had before you, we had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you've given them to me, and they've kept your word. Verse 20, I don't ask this on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. And then verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you've given me, for you love me before the foundations of the world. Church. This is important, powerful stuff. There was a, a, a relationship. The father commissioned the son to secure a people. Each member of the Trinity was involved. In eternity past, the father can be said to be the originator, the planner of this, of this covenant of redemption. The Son is the one who comes and fulfills and executes it by his life. And the Holy Spirit takes the perfect work of Christ and applies it to the life of the believer. This is what is known as the covenant of redemption. And in many ways, we can say the Bible is the unpacking, the playing out of this glorious redemptive covenant. But why does that matter? Let's try to make a practical application here. Why does this matter? Because if you are a follower of Christ, you are a follower of Christ because in eternity past, God set his saving love on you. And he brought it to fulfillment through the life, death, and burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So that's one of the first covenants kind of implied within this genealogy. The covenant of redemption by being the son of God. The second covenant is verse 38, the son of Adam. Now, there is some slight disagreement here if this is an actual covenant. By and large, throughout church history, most believe this, that there were, God had established a covenant with Adam. And it was called the covenant of works. And the covenant of works is the covenant that you can say makes up the entirety of the Old Testament. Whereas the new covenant, which we talk about when we have communion, is the new, is, uh, it comes to fruition in Christ. So he says, son of Adam, again, showing that Jesus is fully human, showing that Jesus represents all humanity, showing that he's the promised savior. And showing that he's going to fulfill what God called Adam to do. God in the garden made a covenant with Adam. That covenant. Called the covenant of works was a covenant that promised eternal life 
if Adam performed perfect total obedience. If Adam obeyed God and, and had a perpetual obedience, then death would not enter the world and they would have life eternal and that they would have blessing in perfect fellowship and the, the, the kingdom of God would expand. But God warned in Genesis chapter 2, verse, verses 16 and 17, that if Adam ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would surely die. There's the condition. The promise, do this and live. The consequence, if you eat, you will die. We saw, if you remember a few weeks back when we were talking to the children about the, the covenant God made with Abraham and the animal slayed on each sloon on each side. And we would say that if there was blessings and curses in covenants. Well, this is it. And Adam represents all of humanity in this covenant. Adam represented you and I. This is why Jesus is called the second Adam. And so this covenant of total obedience is ongoing. That is why Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, says the following. For as many as are the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to do. All who have broken the law of God are cursed, which is what Adam did. Now, I want to quote uh, Dr. Wayne Grudem speaking of this covenant. He says this, quote, is the covenant of works still in force? In several important senses, it is. First of all, Paul implies that perfect obedience to God's laws, if it were possible, would lead to life. We should also notice that the punishment for breaking this covenant is still in effect, for the wages of sin is death. It implies that the covenant of works is still in force for every human being apart from Christ, even though no sinful human being can fully fulfill its provisions and receive its blessings. Finally, we should note that Christ perfectly obeyed the covenant of works for us since he committed no sin, but completely obeyed God on our behalf, end quote. Now we're covering a lot here. God gave Adam the command to totally, perfectly obey him. Every man is required to perfectly obey God. If man perfectly obeys God, man can live an eternal life. But none of us can. So our only hope then is that there is one who can represent us who has lived perfectly, and that is Jesus. And so it can rightly be said that when we talk about Jesus' perfect life, what we're saying is that Jesus has fulfilled the covenant of works. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21 cover that, show that by one man's disobedience, Sin entered the world by another man's obedience. Righteousness is given to those who trust in him. This is the covenant of works, church. This is with the covenant that every person apart from Christ is in. Everybody is born into the world and the covenant they are under expects perfect obedience. This is why humanity is damned in their sin unless they trust in Christ. Why does this matter? Because you need to understand your radical inability. You need to understand that the harder you try, the deeper you dig the hole. 
You need to understand the covenant of works because you can then understand rightly just how perfectly glorious Jesus lived to do what Adam couldn't. Every single person is either represented in the covenant of works in Adam or in the covenant of grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what this covenant makes clear to us, and it is glorious. Another covenant that's implied in here is a covenant with Abraham. In verse 34, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. God made a covenant with Abraham. Abraham is considered the first patriarch, the first father of the faith. And this covenant that God made with Abraham is important, and it kind of spans a couple of different chapters. You have Genesis 12. And in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, we read the following. And Yahweh said to Abram, go forth from your land and from your kin and from your father's house to the land I'll show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I'll bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I'll curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, God tells Abraham the promises that are within this covenant. It is the promise of land. It is the promise that he will have a seed, descendants, and a glorious name. And it is the promise that he will be a blessing to all the world. Now, in Genesis 15, God continues to, to cut this covenant with Abraham. And in Genesis 15, he really begins to unpack the land aspect of it. And for sake of time, I'll just say that the, this, this promise of the land was fulfilled when God made the covenant with Moses. When God made the covenant with Moses, he gave the people a land. We see that in Deuteronomy chapter 30. God fulfills that part of it. In Genesis chapter 17, the promise of a name, of a seed is given. Genesis 17, verses 6 through 14. And I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I'll make nations of you, and kings will go forth from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and your seed after you throughout the generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your seed after you. And I will give to you and to your seed after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. I will be their God. God further, God said further to Abraham, now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your seed after you throughout the generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your seed after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you is eight days and old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. One who's born in the house or who's bought with money from any foreigner who is not your seed. He goes on. What God is promising Abraham is that through Abraham, a dynasty will come forward. A name will be made great, and that is fulfilled through King David. Through King David, there is a lineage, a legacy established. 
a people for God's own possession. What's beautiful about this is who God's character is. Israel had conditions. They were to keep the covenant. They were to perform the circumcision. Circumcision of the flesh was supposed to show circumcision of the heart, a perfect obedience. How many times did Israel fail God? More than we can count. Did God say, you know what? You broke your part. I'm not going to carry out mine. No. God, time and time again, shows that he remains faithful to his promises even when people are faithless. And so God establishes the throne of David. God establishes a people for himself. God raises up the nation of Israel. God keeps the promises. And then in Genesis chapter 22, continuing with this covenant to Abraham, in this chapter, it is when Abraham is called to offer Isaac up. When he lays Isaac out and he is supposed to sacrifice Isaac and Abraham lifts the blade and is ready to perform this act and God stops him and says no. And he provides a ram for sacrifice. And in twenty chapter 22, verses 16 and 18, it says, By myself I have sworn, declares Yahweh, because you have done this thing and have not spared your son, your only one. Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And God fulfills the blessing to the nations that he promised Abraham through the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Christ comes and the world is blessed because salvation is for Jew and Gentile. Jesus fulfills the Abrahamic covenant. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, Jesus is said to be the seed of Abraham. And then in Galatians chapter 3, verse 29, it says that by faith in Christ, all who put their faith in Christ are sons of Abraham. And so we see God keeping his promise. And then we come to the covenant that God makes with David, a very important one. God makes a glorious covenant with King David, which we see at the end of verse 31. King David is a man after God's own heart. A flawed man who who sought time and time again to try to serve God faithfully. And God promises David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, a glorious promise. He promises him that from his seed, there will be a king who will sit on the throne forever. 2 Samuel 7, verses 8 through 17 Unpack that for us. I want to briefly look at it together. Let's start at verse 8. So now, thus 
you shall say to my servant David, thus says Yahweh of hosts, I myself took you from the pasture from following the sheep to be ruler over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you have gone and cut off all your enemies from before you. I will make you a great name, like the name of the great men who are on the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, that they may dwell in their own place and not be disturbed again. And the unrighteous will not afflict them anymore as formerly. Even from that day, I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Yahweh also declares to you that Yahweh will make a house for you. Stop there for a moment. Do you see how, I don't know if you picked up on how God's promise to David mirrors God's promise to Abraham. In verses 9 through 11, he says that he will make his name great, just like God told Abraham he would. In verse 10, he says that he will give land. In verse 11, he says that there will be rest, there will be no wars on either side. So there's an echoing of what God promised to Abraham being said now to David, which is showing the continuity of what God is doing. That's simply during David's life. But after David dies, there are more promises given. So we go on now. Verse 11. I'm verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and when you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up one of raise up one of your seed after you who will come forth from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I'll be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I'll reprove him with the rod of men and strikes by the, from the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not be removed from him as I removed it from Saul, whom I removed before you. And your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. What God is saying is when you die, your family name, the name of David, will be a legacy that will carry on. That's verse 11. In verse 12, he promises a seed in the immediate context. He's saying your son Solomon will come. Solomon will build the house for me. He will build the temple. He will reign. But ultimately, Jesus will come from the line of David, and he will be the ultimate seed, child of promise. And Jesus will be the one that will rule forever on the throne as the eternal king. The promise has always been that the Messiah, the Savior of the world, would come from David's line. So, church, it's important for us to see these things. If we don't see the fulfillment of God's promises throughout the Old Testament into the New, and we simply want to rush to the gospel and rush to the things that are just easier to understand, we do ourselves a great disservice because we don't see the faithfulness of God. We don't see God interacting in time. We miss the faith that our brothers and sisters of the Old Testament had of faith looking forward. So this is important to recognize. The prophets knew this in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. He talks of the Messiah coming from the branch of Jesse, the son of David. Jeremiah talks about this as well. So what Luke is trying to make clear here, referring to anchoring Jesus in, in the life of David in the genealogy, is that Jesus is the promised one. He was the one who fulfilled where Adam didn't. 
He was the one who fulfilled and is the seed of Abraham. He is the one who is to be the eternal king from the line of David. Luke, as a good historian, is establishing the credibility of Christ. He is who he says he is. Which brings us to the final covenant. I'm only going to speak briefly here on this one. Because this is what Luke's gospel will be unpacking. The new covenant. The covenant of grace. We saw the last few weeks Jesus being baptized. And that that was kind of inaugurating his, his mission to come and save sinners, to redeem them. And at communion, when Jesus is sitting with the disciples, he refers to his blood as the, as the new covenant. So the new covenant, which is also called the covenant of grace, is simply this. The covenant that God will forgive sinners through the shed blood and resurrection of Christ. That by faith, he will be their God and they will be his people. The prophet Jeremiah spoke of this. Perhaps the clearest passage in the entire Old Testament of this new covenant that Jesus would bring is found in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. Behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will cut a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like a covenant which I cut with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand, to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, but I was a husband to them, declares Yahweh. But this is the covenant which I will cut with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. I will put my law within them on their heart. I will write it. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, no Yahweh, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares Yahweh. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Jeremiah is speaking about the coming day where one would come from the line of David who will establish a new covenant that will bring about forgiveness and will put the law of God in the hearts of men and reconcile man to God and God to man that he will be their God and they will be his people. And the reason we're not going to go into deeper detail on this covenant is because that's what Luke's gospel is trying to show us and teach us Christ's life unto this purpose. I just want to say that the covenant of grace is one that we should hold very dearly. Because it is the promise that God will forgive sin and restore relationship with those who repent and believe in his son. It speaks of the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. On Friday, when we gather here, and we look at Isaiah 53, and we see that the Son of God was slain for sinners, and that his body was broken and that his blood was spilt, that blood coming out of the side of Christ, being spilled, is the blood of the new covenant. By his wounds, we are healed. So this is extremely important stuff, church. I know working through covenants like this can be quite the mental exercise if we're not accustomed to it. I recognize that I have the luxury of having studied this far more, so this can feel like drinking through a fire hose. But it's important for us to be acquainted with these things. 
It's important for us to know the covenant of redemption that in eternity past, God the Father made a covenant with God the Son to secure people for himself, and that through Jesus' perfect obedience, he would save sinners and that the Father would give the Son a bride. It's important to understand that God made a covenant with Adam that if Adam performed perfect and total obedience, he would have eternal life and rich blessing, but that he didn't and he fell, and all humanity then is under that covenant. It's important that God made a covenant with Abraham that there would be a blessing to all nations, that God would call a people to himself. It's important to see David, that there would be one on David's throne who would be king forever because that is Christ. So become acquainted. If you if you want information or more reading and study on this, we can just reach out to me after service and we can talk. I just don't want this to be foreign concepts to God's people. So often we're so biblically illiterate of the Old Testament that we really don't understand all that Christ accomplished when we read our New Testament. Christ is Savior, but Christ has also fulfilled the law. He fulfilled it all. But the question I want to put before everybody this morning is this. Are you only connected to the ancestry of Adam? Or by faith, are you connected to the ancestry of Christ? Which family line are you in? It's a question of faith, not a question of blood. Church, Jesus is the promised Messiah. He is the one from eternity past who was determined to come and take upon flesh to save sinners. He is the one who fulfilled total obedience by the works of the law because you couldn't. Jesus is the one who brings blessing to all the nations. Jesus is the one sitting on the throne as king. This is who he is. This is why he came. You, by faith, can be in Christ. But you need to decide this day in which ancestry you find yourself. Do you wish to remain under the covenant of works rightly condemned because you identify with Adam? Or by faith will you be found in Christ, the one who fulfilled the covenant of works, the one who fulfilled the covenant to Abraham and David, and the one who came to save sinners? You don't need to delay that decision. You simply need to recognize your sin, repent of your sin, trust in the perfect substitutionary life of Christ and his death. And you become part of that family line. You become part of that genealogy, that ancestry. Church, genealogies really matter. Don't skip over them. Read them. Study them because there is gold in there. Genealogies are like searching for treasure. To be very honest, I was dreading preaching this passage initially. I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to do with this genealogy on a Sunday morning. But if you sit and you dig long enough, you end up finding rubies and diamonds. Your heart ends up being stirred and strengthened. And as I worked through the genealogy, my heart was was fed by God. He provided that rich manna because I was blown away. Look at all that Christ has fulfilled. Christ is worthy. God has made promises and covenants through the ages. And in Jesus, they all are fulfilled 100%. Jesus is truly the son of God, 
the promised son of the covenant who descended from Adam, Abraham, and David, and is the promised savior of the world. In a few moments, we will come to this table. We will take bread. We will take the cup. And this table will proclaim and preach the new covenant in his blood. But the reason we have the new covenant is because Christ has fulfilled the demands of all the old covenants. So with that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we come before you now in the name of Christ. Coming in the name of Christ means we come by faith in him, that we are no longer identified with Adam, but we are identified with the Messiah, that we are no longer identified by our sin, but that we are identified with the one who has fulfilled the covenant of works. Father, our brothers and sisters, as we read in the Old Testament, had a faith looking forward to the day that Christ would come and the new covenant would be given. We live in light of this new covenant. So, Father, help us to prize all that Christ has fulfilled through his perfect life, his substitutionary death, and his resurrection. Father, strengthen us that we don't shy away from deep study of doctrine and theology, that we give ourselves to biblical study and theology so that we can more and more see just how glorious and just how big and powerful it is that all that Christ came and did. May studies of genealogy drive us more to appreciate the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.